All right, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. Title to our message this morning is The Passover Part 1, The Beginning of a New World. As you're turning to Exodus 12, please remember what the psalmist says, that God's word is more desired than gold, than even honey, the drippings from the honeycomb. Now, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13, but we're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 3, and these are the easiest verses, perhaps, to overlook. So let's not overlook them together. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Thus ends God's word. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see now. Not the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We ask for a true communion with the triune God now. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Nine plagues have passed thus far, and Moses now turns to the 10th plague where he gives the most attention. And as we've seen, these these plagues represent 
not only judgment upon Israel for their enslaving and their murdering of God's people, not only the judgment upon Egypt's demon gods, but these plagues also represent the decreating of Egypt itself. We read this quote last week, but I think it's important to remind ourselves of it. The God who made the waters in the beginning in Genesis turned the Nile into blood. The God who made green things grow destroyed vegetation with hail and locusts. The God who made creatures swim in the sea and swarm on dry land brought death to fish and frogs. The God who made men and beasts sent them disease and even death. The God who brought light out of darkness made the light fade to black. End quote. And then we would, we would add that in this plague, the God who gave dominion to man over earth is now going to disinherit the Egyptians of the earth by killing their firstborn. So if these plagues represent the decreation of Egypt. What does the Passover represent? It represents the creation of Israel. There's decreation and recreation happening in our passage. God is tearing down the old world and he's raising up the new one. And that's how the Bible speaks about Israel coming out of Egypt. Starting with the Passover, it's the creation of a new world. And we're going to see it from here on out. And that's precisely, dear friends, how the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ works. The old world that we were enslaved to in our sin, in our misery, and our death is torn down when the true and better Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, came into the world. We were delivered from the old world and brought into the new one, and we were made entirely new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all has become new. Here's our big idea this morning. Redemption is the recreation of God's people. The old has passed away, the new has come. Redemption is the recreation of God's people. The old has passed away, the new has come. So let's begin then with our first heading, which is our doctrine this morning. Please look with me at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. Now, this might not seem significant, but it actually is significant. Some of the Passover requirements here that we just read were only for the land of Egypt while they were in captivity. Others of the requirements for Passover were perpetual. For instance, in the land of Egypt, the lamb was to be sacrificed at each family's home. But hereafter, it was to be taken to the tabernacle, Deuteronomy 16.5. Additionally, the smearing of the blood on the doorposts was only for this first Passover uh, in the land of Egypt. So this Passover, in one sense, was a unique, never-to-be-repeated event. The subsequent celebrations of Passover were memorials. They were remembrances of what 
God did in the first Passover. So that's why this first verse stresses that the Lord told them this in the land of Egypt. Now, apparently, these words were spoken to uh, Moses and Aaron um, several days, I I think two weeks before um, the events of chapter 11, before this evening. According to verse 6, Passover was to happen on the 14th day of the month. But according to verse 3, they were to start preparing for it on the 10th day of the month, taking the lamb to their own home. If God spoke the words of verse 2 on the first day of the month, then this took place two weeks before Passover, so perhaps during the plague of locusts. I mean, it's not even until verse 21 where Moses actually tells all of these instructions to the elders of Israel. But remember... The actual Passover took place on the 14th night. Chapter 11 ended with the 14th night. So so God instructed them well before this evening so that they could prepare accordingly. They were to leave in haste, and they would have had to have been ready. So I want us to see that we have three beginnings in this passage, three beginnings. Number one, the beginning of time. Number two, the beginning of Israel, and number three, the beginning of redemption. So let's look at those in order. First of all, the beginning of time. Look at verse two. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, the Hebrew word for beginning here means more than just first. It means source, or head, or top, or chief. It's, it doesn't only indicate the beginning of a new age, but it, it, it represents the source of their life as a nation. From here forward, God wanted Israel, Israel's calendar to reflect this very moment, and it shapes the entire Bible. Prior to this time, it was believed that the ancient world celebrated the new year at harvest time. So Calvin and Edwards and others believed that it was September in the, during the autumn equinox. Uh, the reason being is because that harvest time uh, reflects the creation of the world. When Adam and Eve came into the garden, what was the, uh, what was the garden full of? It was full of... Uh, fruits, ripe fruits and ripe vegetables. Well, that happens at harvest. But now God is changing the beginning of their months. He's changing their calendar. Uh, This month, which the Jews uh, called the month of Abib, which is from March to April, would now, and this is consequently when Passover is, right? Uh, Would now be their first month their chief month, their source month for all of their life. Michael Morales says here, quote, the Passover is so significant that God reorients time itself, making the month of Passover the first or chief month of Israel's liturgical calendar. Such a momentous paradigm shift served to define Israel's deliverance out of Egypt in, as inaugurating a new beginning, not merely in terms of a fresh start. That's not what he's saying here. But as a new creation, a new life on the other side of their death 
to the old life. Indeed, every major festival of Israel was associated with the Exodus, granting each generation an annual experience of Israel's redemption, intended to shape the nation's identity and vocation and its knowledge of Yahweh, the God of the Exodus, end quote. The Passover was meant to alter time itself for the nation of Israel, changing their calendar forever. This is a reenactment of creation. So that's our, our first beginning. That's our first beginning. Passover represents the beginning of a new age, beginning of months, new year, first month, first day. Secondly, our second beginning is the beginning of Israel. Look at verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel. Stop right there. One of the things that we have to be aware of in Scripture is, is kind of the, the law of first mentions. Um, if you look up the word congregation in the Hebrew lexicon, you'll discover that this is the first time we read these words, the congregation of Israel. John Currid says here that we are viewing for the first time the establishment of the Hebrews as a corporate entity. So Israel came into Egypt as a family, as, as a large family, but it was just a family. And now they're leaving Egypt as a nation. Passover marks the birthday of the nation of Israel. So, so this was their Independence Day. This was their 4th of July, as it were. And the establishment of Israel as a nation was, um, was the most significant event in the Old Testament redemptive history. Um, there, there are two places that show the significance of the creation of Israel. Let's turn, let's turn to them. First, turn with me to Romans 9, 4 through 5. Here Paul is lamenting over the Jews because they were rejecting the Messiah, but he helps us to see how significant the creation of Israel was. This is what he says. Romans 9, 4 through 5. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So in Paul's mind, the creation of Israel was absolutely paramount. He loved the nation of Israel so much, which is why he said, I, would, I would, we could be cut off from them if God would permit. Second, to see the significance of Israel, turn to Isaiah 51, 16, and 17. Isaiah 51, 16, and 17. Here, the prophet is looking back on the Exodus event and he's using now kind of a prophetic code to teach us how significant the, the beginning of Israel was. Isaiah 51, 16 and 17. We read this. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea. Now, 
Other translations render that who divided the sea, uh, recalling God's parting of the sea for Israel as they left Egypt. I am the Lord your God who parts the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I've put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Now, this is why the prophets are hard to understand sometimes because here you have the prophet mixing two events together, the creation of the world and the exodus. But are they two events? Listen to what the Puritan John Owen says here. The time here mentioned of establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth was performed by God when he divided the sea, verse 15. That is, when he took the children of Israel out of Egypt and formed them in the wilderness into a church and state. Then he planted the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. He made the new world. That is, he brought forth order and government and beauty from the confusion wherein before they were. This is the planting of the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth in the world. So this is how, this is like prophetic code, right? What's the code of the Bible? Well, he, he's telling us a historical event in prophetic language, and he's talking about the, the nation of Israel in terms of the heavens and the earth being created. So that's our, our second beginning. Passover represents the beginning of a new world. Thirdly, the beginning of redemption. So let's turn back to Exodus 12. Third one is the beginning of redemption. Now we have to understand that the Israelites were not exempt from the last plague. A firstborn was going to die. It was only a question of which firstborn. It would either be their own firstborn or it would be the firstborn lamb. Verse 3, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for the household. Now, I wonder what Moses and Aaron and Israel thought about this lamb. I don't know what they believed, but we know for certain what the New Testament authors believed about who this lamb was. When John the Baptist saw Jesus walking toward him, what was the first thing he said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Apostle Paul, in, in teaching in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he says that Christ is our Passover lamb who was sacrificed. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.19, that we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In the book of Revelation, the word lamb is mentioned 30 times in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Revelation 5.13. The lamb of God is the reason. 
Israel entered into a new age. Israel entered into a new world. It's the reason why the old world was passing away and the new world was coming. And this is what we have to get, that Israel being recreated is a foreshadow of our redemption. Jesus, the true and better Passover lamb, Christ, came and exhibited the true and better redemption. So that's our third beginning. Passover represents the beginning of our redemption. So that brings us then to our doctrine this morning that redemption is a recreation of God's people. Try to, if that word is just too common for you, try to hear it with new ears. Sometimes we can read the Bible and pass over words that are so familiar and miss the import of it. Scripture identifies redemption with, the, with Genesis 1. Israel wasn't merely being freed from Egyptian slavery. Israel was being recreated, new age, new world. And her redemption is a type of ours. We have entered into a new life, a new age, a new world. So, so consider for ourselves three proofs of this from Scripture. Proof number one is the new birth. The new birth. Children... Boys and girls, when was the first time you breathed air? It's not that hard, is it? When was the first time I breathed air? When you were born, right? You were given life at conception, of course, but then you came into this world at birth and you breathed and you screamed and you cried and you ate and you drank. What does the Bible call getting saved? Calls it the new birth. It's, call, it's called being born again. It's not accidental. First Peter 1.3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, the new birth teaches us that Jesus Christ has ushered in a new life, a new creation. Christians are new creations. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, the new is come. Proof number two is, is the new Sabbath. Why do we rest uh, and Sabbath on the first day of the week when Israel rested on the seventh? Well, Israel rested on the seventh in order to glory in God's first creation, Exodus 20, 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. But we know from, from the beginning of the New Testament that the church began meeting on the first day of the week because why? Christ, the first Adam, the head of the new creation, rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Just as Israel's calendar changed at Passover, so the church's calendar changed when Christ rose from the dead. The new Sabbath teaches us that Jesus Christ has ushered in a whole new age. Proof number three, the new world. Let's turn to Isaiah 65 together. So we've seen the proof number one was the new birth. Proof number two was the new Sabbath. Proof number three is the new world. In Isaiah 65, look at verse one. And if you look in your footnote, 
you'll see that that Paul cites this verse in Romans 10, verse 20. So God says in verse 1, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. So who is the Lord speaking about here? The Gentiles. He's talking about saving the Gentiles through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, how does God describe this salvation of the Gentile world? How does he describe it? The same way he described the salvation of the Jews from Egypt. Look at verse 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Now, now some people mistake this uh, language here for, for heaven, heaven. Uh, and certainly there is a new heavens and a new earth that is coming in glory. But look at the passage later on, and you'll see that things belong here in this list that do not belong in heaven, such as birth and, and such as death. When the Lamb of God came into the world, it was, it was more radical than the Exodus. It's so radical that the scripture likens it to the new heavens and the new earth. So that's our doctrine, that redemption is the recreation of God's people. So let's look at our duty. And our first duty is just simply to think about how we ought to read the Bible. How ought we to read the Bible? Brothers and sisters, like you practice discriminatory reading all the time. If you're, if you're reading the newspaper, or if you're reading a comic, or if you're reading chat GPT, you're, you're reading each of those things very differently. Some of us are newer Christians, or, and we don't yet know how to read the Bible. Some of us are older Christians, and we haven't rightly been taught. The Old Testament is filled with types. A type is a prophecy in picture form. So Romans 5.14 says that Adam is a type of Christ. Hebrews 8.5, tabernacle was a type of heaven. Acts 7.38, Israel was a type of the church. Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians 5.7, um, our redemption from sin, or, or Israel's redemption from Egypt, the Passover, is a type of our redemption from sin. So to read about Israel's deliverance here and to not directly ap apply it to us is to misread the Bible. Um, Israel's deliverance was recreation, the beginning of a new age, the beginning of a new world. And that's precisely how we have to see our redemption. If, you, if you've not been introduced to typology, I think there's two really good books on the subject. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called A History of Redemption, where he takes Genesis 3.15 and he traces it all the way through the Bible. For children, and we've done this book with um, our family for family worship, there's a great book called uh, Grandpa's Box by Star Mead. It's retelling the biblical story of redemption. and he, She just takes the Old Testament and shows you how Jesus is in every type. So that brings us then to our, our second duty which is to answer an important objection here. Someone might say, well, why are we even using this fantastical language? 
Why compare redemption to recreation? Why liken Christ's gospel to creating a new heavens and a new earth? Why so fantastical? I have two answers. First, I would say that this is the language that the Bible uses. Um, Apparently, God wants us to think about what Christ has done in not fantastical enough. Loved ones, which is easier? Creating a new heavens and a new earth or creating a Christian? See, this tests our understanding of what it means to be born again. What's easier? The work of creation is certainly an unfathomable work of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The the skies above proclaim his handiwork. We're going to be studying and glorying in God's creation for all eternity. But the work of redemption far exceeds the work of creation. Think of it. Let's, let's, Let's compare the two. In creation, what did God do? He said three words, right? Let there be. But in redemption, God the Son forever united himself to a human nature. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says here. This shows the great and inconceivable power of God to unite nature so infinitely different as the divine and human nature into one person. If God can make one who is truly God and one who is truly man the self-same person, what is it that he cannot do? That is a far greater and more marvelous work than all of creation. End quote. In creation, God brought all things out of nothing, that Latin phrase, ex nihilo, out of nothing. No human being will ever, ever make anything out of nothing. It is an unparalleled power. But in redemption... God started with less than nothing. God started with rebellious man who was given over to sin and death. And he took that rebellious man and he brought him into conformity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Edward says here, making a holy creature, a creature in the spiritual image of God, in the image of the divine excellencies, and a partaker of the divine nature is a far greater work than merely to give life. To bring a sinner to a holy and happy being is a state infinitely better than mere life, end quote. You becoming a Christian is a greater miracle than Jupiter, than Mars, than the Milky Way galaxy, than all the six trillion stars in, in our galaxy. I think, I think there's like six trillion galaxies. In creation, 
There was no opposition that God faced in the beginning. There was no one fighting against him because nothing makes no opposition, right? But in redemption, God has faced opposition on every single side. In in Egypt, God faced the opposition from Pharaoh, from the demon gods, and from the Israelites that themselves didn't want to leave. And likewise, in our redemption, Jesus had to face the strong man. He had to face Satan himself who held dominion over the kingdoms of the world. Matthew 12, 29 says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? When Jesus came into the world, he bound the strong man, just like Pharaoh was bound. But he also conquered the entire demon army. Colossians 2.15 says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So he overcame Satan, he overcame all the demons, but he also overcame your opposition and my opposition. When Jesus came into the world, he didn't come to the sound of... He came to the sound of those who hated him. He came to the sound of those who wanted nothing to do with him. John 3, 19 says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There's never been a person who wanted to be saved. Ever. People only want to be saved when they're given the new birth and they're made into a new creation, then they cry out for the first time, oh God, oh God, oh God. Dear congregation, it is not fantastical language to compare the work of Jesus Christ to the beginning of a new age or the beginning of a new world. It's understatement. It's missing the mark. It's below what actually happens. Our third duty is, is rebuke. Those are, to, those are to be rebuked by this message who are still under the calendar of Egypt. These are those who have no time for the true and living God. God is not the center of their calendar. You know, calendars are religious things, aren't they? Calendars are like checkbooks. Checkbooks reveal what the most important things in our lives are. Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there where your heart will be also. Our money shows us who we worship. And likewise, our calendars show us who our God is. Who controls our time is our God. When Pharaoh was first confronted by Moses... He said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He, one of the things he was saying by that is that my calendar is my own. No one controls my time but me. When God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, what's the first thing that he does? He takes control of their calendar, of their time. If a person rejects God's lordship over time, it's, over their time, it's because they reject God. They're saying, like Pharaoh... Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice, that I should give him my time? 
These are, these are the people that live for themselves. These are those who, whose calendar has no room for the living God. It's filled with wickedness. They think it's no great sin to spend all of their time on themselves and their own desires and to leave no room for God. This is the non-Christian. And dear friend, if that's you, then be warned that that those who were under Egypt's calendar were cut off. That's the end of this story. They were on the outside of the Passover feast. They were outside of Christ. Imagine what was taking place when, when Israel was eating the Passover lamb. What would you have heard on the outside? Screaming, wailing. You see, the punishment of Egypt is a, is a type of punishment in hell. The word for hell is Gehenna or Hinnom, and it refers to a city dump. It's a place where junk and trash and decay and worms and fires consume all of the waste. And dear unbelieving friend, if you were to choose the garbage dump over God, then you're a fool. Turn away from your sins. You... you you can find forgiveness. You can find salvation if you turn to Christ in faith. The blood of the lamb is sufficient to cleanse you from all sin. He's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So those are our Three duties, to think carefully how we read the Bible, to understand redemption is greater than creation, and to rebuke those who live still under Egypt's calendar. Let's turn finally to our delight this morning. The cal- I mean, isn't it interesting? Here we are, right, in, in the month of June. The world's calendar says something very particular about this month, doesn't it? But dear, dear people of the Lord, our calendar, our calendar brings us the greatest comfort on earth. When God redeemed Israel, the first thing he said was, this shall be for you the beginning. This shall be for you the beginning. And that's exactly what he says to us, what Christ says to us. This shall be for you the beginning. A.W. Pink puts it like this. All the years that we lived before we became new creatures in Christ are not reckoned to our account. The past is blotted out. Our unregenerate days were so much lost time. Our past lives in the service of sin and Satan were wasted. But when we became new creatures in Christ, old things passed away and all things became new. This is the story of every single saint in the Bible. Think of all the saints whose past Christ blotted out. 
What was Abraham before he became the father of the nation of Israel? He was a pagan moon worshiper, and God blotted that out and said, this is now the beginning of life. What was Mary Magdalene? She was filled with seven devils. And then Christ, our Passover lamb, took a hold of her, and he said, this shall be for you the beginning. And Jesus made her one of her disciple, his disciples. Think of Paul. What was Paul's like while he lived in Egypt? He, persec- he was the greatest persecutor of the church. He murdered Christians. He had blood on his hands. And then Jesus took a hold of him and he said, this now shall be for you the beginning. And he made him an apostle and a shepherd of the church. Loved ones, when Christ took a hold of you, the first thing he said was, this shall now be a beginning for you. A new age began, a new birth was was given, a new world was created in you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Think of you, think of what you were before that new beginning began. Think of, of what you were when you used to live in Egypt. What was your life like? You were a slave. You were a slave to sin. You, you hated your life. You, you didn't love the things you were doing, but you couldn't part with them. You were in bondage to Satan, like the Israelites were in bondage to Egypt. You were separated from Christ. You were a stranger of the covenants. You were without hope. You were without God in the world. You were desperate. There was no life for you. And then God, Christ, took a hold of you. He brought you under the blood of the Passover lamb. And he said, this is now the beginning of life. All things were instantly made right. And the son set you free. You were a child of disobedience, but that's been blotted out. You are now a child of God. You were dead in your sins, but now that has been blotted out. You are now alive in Christ. You were an unclean thing filled with unclean spirits, but now that has been blotted out. A new beginning. You're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You've been recreated. Dear congregation, the work wrought in you is a greater work than creating the cosmos. God had to unite God and man into one to redeem you. He had to take you from the guttermost in order to bring you to the uttermost. He overcame every opposition, Satan, demons, and even your own to bring you to him. Comfort yourself with that truth, loved ones. What Christ has done in you is the greatest work, the most excellent work, a work that will bring him praise and honor and glory for all eternity. What then is our charge this morning? Well, I have have two exhortations for you. First, I charge you, loved ones, Count the day of your second birth the most honorable day of your life. Count the day of your second birth the most honorable day of your life. Count that day 
as the day that God said, this is the beginning of life. And it doesn't matter if you remember what day you were born again on. It's not what I mean. I don't remember. What matters is that you look on the beginning that day as when God brought you into a new age, a new world. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says here. That day, the day of your second birth, it eclipses your natural birthday. For then you were born in sin, but now you are born into spiritual life. You're born into eternal bliss. This day eclipses your marriage day. For union to Christ shall bring you into greater felicity than the happiest of conjugal bonds. If you've ever known a day in which you received the honors of others, the honors of the state, or gained distinction in learning, or attained to a position in society, or, array, or arrived at a larger wealth, all of these are but dim, cloudy, foggy days compared with this morning without clouds. On that day, your sun rose never to go down again. The die was cast. Your destiny for glory was openly declared. End quote. See, we need to remember the day when we were made new. We need to remember the day when we first began because we can so easily get discouraged. We forget that God has reset our calendar and that our identity and that our calling and our everlasting joy is in him and it has nothing to do with the calendar of this world. Secondly, I, I charge you, loved ones, fight, fight to have God the priority in your calendar. Fight for it. Fight to have God the priority in your calendar. In our passage, God put himself as the priority of Israel's calendar. The first month, Abib, was to be the head month, the source month, the chief month. And there's a lesson here. And the lesson is that God wants the first fruits of our time. He wants the best, the best portion. And this of, course, uh, this, of course, means that we give the first day of the week to them. This is the Lord's day, after all. But it means more than that. It means that, that Jesus Christ is to have priority in all of our time. He would have us to seek first the kingdom of God in our marriages, in our parenting, in our jobs, in our celebrating, in our sorrow, in our trials, in our sicknesses, in, in all things. You see, in the world's calendar, God is forgotten. God is the little footnote at the end of the page. But to the Christian, God is to be the first consideration in how we spend every day of our life. He is the new beginning. How can we not live for him all of the days of our life? I want to challenge you, giving God control of our calendar is not a miserable thing. The misery is being under Egypt's calendar. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. May God bless us and enable us to that end. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for our redemption that we see here in Egypt. We thank you that you have described it as a new birth, as a new age, as a new world. Help us, Lord, never to despise or to belittle what you have done in us. Lord, what you have done in us is greater than any other work. That you would take sinners and make them your sons. That you would take sons of disobedience and make them brothers of Christ. And so, God, we thank you for the new world that you have brought us into. And we pray that you would help us to live with you as the source of all of our time, Lord over all of our time. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.